Good morning. It's nice to sweat in church again. <laughs> I have a new appreciation for that this week. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, nothing's going to be on screen, obviously, today. Um, in your outlines, I've filled in everything for you. Not that it's a, a great mystery this week. Um, I have a few longer quotes I was hoping to have up there, but you'll just have to stick with me. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm bringing this home today and the next couple weeks. I'd like to read our passage for you in the larger context, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and, having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your revealed word given to us. Father, it's no longer a mystery, not just your work among the whole world, but Father, your work in our hearts. Father, I pray today for myself that you would give me words to speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, words that will encourage your soldiers. Father, that will encourage this body. Father, that will wake us up if we are sleeping. And that will press us on if we are fighting. Father, I pray that your word today would be softening to all those that hear that you would use your word to stir inside of us righteousness. And Father, that we would cling to truth above all else. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Around the close of the ninth century, the Vikings had been storming through France, tearing apart all of Charlemagne's kingdom and his successors. Finding out very quickly that the French don't like to fight. <laughs> they like to pay. And they would pay, and they would leave, and then they would come back the next spring to get paid again. Month after month, year after year, the French didn't want to fight. Eventually, however, some of the kingdoms got tired of it and pushed them farther north, not at their leader's impetus. He was spread thin as it was. So the Vikings moved into Ireland, and begin taking it over from the south 
to the north, having great success there, founding Dublin. As they expanded there, they decided to move uh, west again, I'm sorry, east again into Britain. They began there many years ago. And they found themselves in the uh, middle of what they called the great heathen army. Ivar the Boneless, the son of Ragnar Lothbrok, some of you are familiar with the History Channel, um, sort of similar, uh, finds himself at the head of this massive, massive army as far as Vikings and the time at least were concerned. And they move throughout England. And they're taking it over section by section. And finally they're ready to head to the middle where there's great... Great plunder, but as you know, Vikings like their ships, so the middle is kind of the last place you want to go. As they head in, they take up residence in Nottingham. The king of Mercia is obviously concerned and calls for the king of Wessex to aid him in ousting these Northmen. So they arrive, and they're ready to do battle. The Vikings are vastly outnumbered. There's only a 1,000 of them but they are by far the superior fighting force. And while they may be superior in their fighting, they will suffer massive casualties away from home. And all they are concerned about is plunder. And they would like to be alive to enjoy it. Meanwhile, the Englishmen arrive on the scene, and they are, as I said, far outnumbering the Vikings. And they're there to fight for home, for their land, for their families, for God, for king, for country, right? All of the right things, not just loot. The problem is, armies, as I think Napoleon said, uh, move on their bellies. Resources are of great importance when it comes to armies. And of course, being at home, you would think that they would have access to all these great resources, and indeed they do. But at some point in a siege, it's going to come down to who's got the most character who's going to be able to tough it out when all you're eating is flour and water who's going to be able to tough it out when disease strikes and morale starts to dip and somewhat of a gamble but also knowing his people Ivor decides instead of fleeing and then living to fight another day to gamble and ride out the siege when it works out in his favor the Englishmen soon have to return to their farms have to return to find things to eat and aren't able to stick it out when disease and gruel starts. The Vikings are paid an enormous sum of money. They leave. All is well. Next year they come back and they take it again. You find in this story that those who fight for all the right reasons and who are of the greatest force and who have the greatest resources don't always succeed. At the end of the day, when it comes to warfare, most often it comes down to character. See, wars have been waged all over time for all different kinds of things, for money, for property, for honor, for power and oil. But the war that we are engaged in, the war that Scripture speaks of, the greatest conflict in human history is not over any of those things. It is over us. Our enemy, the dragon, sports many names. The serpent, the liar, the god of this world. But perhaps his most fitting name is Satan. It means accuser. And that's what John calls him. The accuser of our brethren, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
He wields the weapon of accusation. And by it, he enslaves us in guilt and shame and depravity and lies. Each evil is a link in the chains that bind us. And each chain the accuser wraps round and round our souls. He binds us in bondage. And his greatest fear is that we will hear that his enemy has come to set us free. Paul tells us in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Our first point today is to put on the belt of truth. As I said in house gathering, I'm not the greatest when it comes to imperatives in our outlines. I'm, it's, I'm not as much a prophet as I am a teacher. This one's easy. Put on the belt of truth. There's, nothing, there's no hidden message here. I have a short verse that has two main points. It's pretty clear what the task is. Put on the belt of truth. Paul's giving us a very deliberate personal action to accomplish. It's interesting, too, that he gives them in such a way that it's, it's helpful for us uh, visually. You, you might consider the fact that he's writing this in jail, chained to a Roman soldier, right? The writing, writing, he's been writing five chapters, and he gets to chapter six. It's like, that's perfect. Belt, breastplate, helmet, shield, sword. That's fantastic. It fits well. Or it may just simply remind Paul, the Pharisee, once upon a time, of the Old Testament in Isaiah, where we see much of the same, similar language. It's a deliberate personal action. It's the order in which you put on these things is the order in which we get them. Now, we have to be careful, and this is something I wanted to uh, get out of the way at the beginning of my study this week. Uh, There is a reason that he uses these descriptive words, such as the belt, the breastplate. There's a reason. Otherwise, he would just say, put on righteousness, as he often has said. And even as he said, Earlier in Ephesians, put off the old man, put on the new man. It's just simply character, right? But he uses these descriptive type pieces and for a reason. Now, we can't over-allegorize these pieces and say, um, well, it has to be the right style of armor, otherwise it won't work right. That's not what we're getting. We're saying this is armor. It functions in this way. We can think of it that way. When we hear about the helmet of salvation, it probably has something to do with our mind and not our feet, Right? The feet of readiness for the gospel has to do with our feet and not necessarily our head, right? So it, it has a positional place for us to understand, but we shouldn't over-apply that specific aspect of it. And when we think about specifically the belt of truth, you think about actually putting on something. Uh, one of the greatest challenges, I think, to Christians is that we live in a state of unpreparedness. We are severely underprepared for the battle in which we are engaged, and we talked about that at length last week, and we just wanted to be aware of the battle that's going on around us, let alone the fact that we have an enemy and what that enemy looks like. See, within our Old Testament context, if we think about this armor, the rule of God's anointed one in the divine kingdom is going to be characterized by two things, righteousness and truth. And the armor which the Messiah wears in battle is now provided for his people as they engage in spiritual warfare. The Messiah, the Anointed One, has already put this on in winning His divine kingdom back from the enemy, and now He provides that same armor to His people as they engage in the battle. 
You see, in heaven, we're not going to appear in armor, right? But rather in robes of glory. But here, we are to wear our armor night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them. Or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. You see, in this armor, we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance. Even in sleeping, a fly will fly very dangerously to creep onto a lion's mouth, right? Think about those in Scripture who had issues while they slept. If Samson, whose hair was cut by Delilah, while he slept. King Saul, whose spear David stole while he was asleep. Noah, who was in some way abused by his son while he was in a drunken sleep. And Eutychus, who slept while Paul preached and fell from the tower to his death, only for Paul to bring him back to life. We have to wear it all the time. This, this, this has me in mind of Nehemiah. We were there, seems a long time ago now. Um, in Nehemiah, what did the workers have to do while they were working on the wall? On one hand, they worked on the wall. and the other hand, they held their sword. They were ready for battle all the time. They were vigilant. So let's talk about this belt specific, specifically. Strictly speaking, the belt or girdle, you might see either word, is not part of the armor. But before the armor can be put on, the garments underneath must be bound together. Most of you are familiar with the idea of girding your loins, right? Taking the robe that they would wear, everyone wore a dress back then, taking the robe and tucking it into their belt so that they would be prepared for strenuous activity. It can be all sorts of different things. An interesting thing is as he buckled it on, it gives him a sense of hidden strength and confidence. And I think belts and braces still do that same thing. From orthotics to good-fitting clothes to actually your belt. Before we would do our heavier squats and weightlifting, you put on a belt. And it gives you the sense of, I can probably do like this bar and that one now. Because you're ready for action. You feel this tightness that helps support. It holds your back together, among other things. Belts and braces still have this sense of getting us ready to go. You show up for a football game just wearing your shorts and your t-shirt, and you're like, all right, we've got a game tonight. You're kind of ready to go, right? But you start getting in there, and you suit up. You tighten the belt. You put on your pads, and you're ready to, to kill people, right? Getting ready for the battle begins at this level. What's interesting, too, is that when he's actually wearing his belt in their particular context, it lets people know that he's on duty. Right? Everyone wore just a tunic. It's like a square piece of uh, a sheet that has a head hole and an arm hole. Right? And if you're not doing anything else, you're just easy breezy beautiful. Right? But when it's time to do work, you put on the belt. You get everything together, and it's time to go. I'm afraid that there are many Christians, even in our church, who are not on duty. They don't realize but there's a war going on like we talked about last week. So for our purposes, when we talk about the belt of truth, we're seeing that the belt of truth, truth is what makes it possible to move. Truth is what makes it possible for us to move. As the belt pulls everything together and prepares one, truth is what pulls everything together for the Christian and prepares them for work. Now, when we talk about truth, we have to define specifically what we're talking about. And we're going to have to do that again for righteousness as well. 
So what does Paul have in mind here? Well, the commentators vary on this and on the other one. Most of it has to do with just methods of interpretation. So first of all, some would say that truth is like the truth of theology or a true understanding of the things of God in the gospel that gives the ability to be agile in the field of attack, to be able to move quickly when Satan is throwing his darts. Others say that it could refer to truth in the sense of living the truth. In other words, personal integrity. A person who's involved in spiritual warfare but is weighed down with his own sinfulness is like someone trying to run through a battlefield with a robe around his ankles. And this is the, this is the picture that I get. We're Christians everywhere who are running around with their pants around their ankles. My daughter did this for me yesterday. Every time I have an illustration, my kids do it for me. Um, Avery's potty trained, right? As in, she knows when she went potty and can take off her diaper and leave it somewhere. Um, and then says she needs another diaper, so she walk, wanders around with her pants around her ankles, right? And uh, that's, her, her, that's her deal, right? So I say, oh, you need a diaper. Let's go to the diaper changing table. So I go over there, and then I wait for like 10 minutes, and she's waddling over to me. Diaper, right? I mean, that's, that's the way she rolls. That's the way that a lot of us, I think, are. We have our pants around our ankles. We don't understand what's going on. We're not ready. We're not girded for action. So we, I think, can conclude that it's not necessarily just the truth of the gospel that's alluded to. Of course, that is absolutely paramount and important. But it's not just that. I think that there is a heavy sense of the idea of integrity, truth, and the inward being. Specifically, that Psalm 51 speaks about. See, as the girdle gives ease, the belt gives ease and freedom to our movement so that it's the truth which gives this freedom with ourselves, with our neighbors, with God. Lack of perfect sincerity hampers us at every turn. I think God certainly clearly requires truth in the inward being. And a Christian must at all times and at all costs be honest and truthful. You see, to be deceitful is to lapse into hypocrisy, to resort to intrigue and scheming. This is to play the devil's game, and we definitely cannot beat him at his own game. What he hates is transparent truth. He loves darkness. Light causes him to flee. You see, spiritual and mental honesty about oneself is in Dispensable. One commentator says this. It tells the truth about human nature and prescribes the sole effectual remedy for its ills, speaking of truth. So many of which are falsely diagnosed by physicians of no real value. It substitutes an infallible for an erratic criterion. Reality for speculation. Appealing to him whose name is truth as its ultimate authority. Resolution of soul springs from settled conviction, from a full persuasion that the cause championed is not merely legitimate, but supremely lovable. A trust of untold value and validity compared with which terrestrial prizes are but baubles. Faithfulness will be the girdle of such a warrior's reigns. I love this contrast that he's drawing out between truth and lies. It's very, very clear and easy for us to see. He says, it substitutes an infallible for an erratic criterion. 
reality for speculation. Lies want us to speculate. The accuser wants us to speculate. It wants to ignore reality and speculate about the way things could be, should be, the way that we want them to be, rather than to deal with reality and see truth clearly. Rather than have infallibility, sure-footedness, again, a reality of the way things are, instead, the accuser wants us to have erratic criterion where we can't name what the problem is, but we just know something's wrong. One day it's this, another day it's that. One day it's this person, another day it's that person. It's this event, it's this circumstance, it's that boss, it's this kid, it's that spouse. Truth gets rid of erratic criterion and has infallible standards for the way that reality should be. Truth gives a resolution of soul from settled convictions on what is certain. It's legitimate and it's supremely lovable. It's of untold value, particularly compared to what the terrestrial, to what earth can offer us. The commentator goes on to say this. The heart made upright by divine grace will be nerved for any fray, outnumbered though it may be by the satellites of error, whereas the lurking consciousness of an unsound foundation, either without or within, praises the combatant's arm forthwith. He who contends for the truth with no hypocrisy because he prizes it above rubies will deal such decisive strokes that he will daunt the militia of craft and subtlety assailing him before they can task his metal or offer a counterbuff to his heavenly battle axe. Apparently my commentator is a dwarf. <laughs> I was reading this in the office, and it was like, all right, so before every football game, just because this is something you do, and I think it's in a movie, um, you listen to Phil Collins in the air tonight, right? When the drums come in, everybody gets like ready to roll. All right, I'm not an emotional guy. It never worked for me. Um, I'm just ready to go out there and do my job. It's business. Um, I'm reading this, and I get a, I'm like emotional. I don't get emotional. This got me emotional. I have a heavenly battle axe, even though Paul says a sword. I'm ready to go. And the sense here is that with truth, you contend for truth with no hypocrisy because you prize it above all else. And you're going to deal such decisive strokes that you will daunt them. You, you will knock them on their heels, and you'll put them on the retreat before they're ever ready to even test your mettle, before you ever suffer a stroke. That's what truth does for believers. Truth brings it all together. It's the foundational garment. It's the foundational step for fighting. If you don't have truth, you don't have wisdom. If you don't have truth, you can't fight well. If you don't have truth, you're wandering around with your pants around your ankles. Second, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you look at righteousness in Paul's letters, more often than not, it means justification. Specifically, 
defined as God's gracious initiative in putting sinners right with himself through Christ. That is justification. If you're intrigued by that, we're going to be having a class on the atonement. Of course, we're going to have to talk a lot about justification here in a couple weeks at the beginning of February. So, is that what the Christian's breastplate is? Is it that kind of righteousness, your justification? I would say that certainly no spiritual protection is greater than a righteous relationship with God. To have been justified by His grace through simple faith in Christ crucified, to be clothed with a righteousness which is not your own but Christ's, to stand before God not condemned but accepted, this is an essential defense against an accusing conscience and against the slanderous attacks of the evil one who again, his Hebrew name, Satan, means adversary or accuser, and whose Greek title, diabolos or devil, means slanderer. And so knowing that there is nothing that can be thrown against you because your righteousness is not yours but Christ is, of course, a very solid and important part of the defense against Satan's actions. Romans tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who's to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who's at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. This is the Christian assurance of righteousness. A relationship, a right relationship with God through Christ. That's a strong, strong breastplate to protect us against satanic accusations. See, the breastplate that we see covers the vital organs, right? All the tender spots that covers those things. What's interesting about righteousness in this particular case is we're in a conflict where heart issues are at stake. If you're familiar with our style of counseling or at least our understanding of the way it should be done biblically, we believe that all sin is a heart issue. And we're in a war that is concerned with heart issues. They lie at stake. Romans settles the question of what a Christian trooper should reside in when we talk about inextinguishable confidence and unclenching fortitude. You see, a breastplate of righteousness consists in, of the works of who? Christ. That breastplate is impenetrable. Nothing can get through that breastplate. It's not only strong, it's flawless. It's the very righteousness of God. And it's the very righteousness of God that God requires and meets His standard. And He gives it to us, the combatant. It's His own godliness and integrity. It's the radical change wrought within Him that is given to a sanctified people. It's on this basis of our captain and His righteousness and the pledge of, that He's made to His own, the fact that He is with us, that He battles for us, that He leads us. It's that pledge and His personal righteousness that we stand on. One commentator says this, self-reliance in any shape would constitute no bulwark for his soul. And it will not withstand hostile missiles. It would crinkle or warp in the hour of peril. 
The Lord, our righteousness, must be our trusty munition, our sevenfold shield and buckler, which no sword thrust can pierce, our impregnable rampart and buttress, which no volleys of the pit can batter or raise. But it's certainly the righteousness of God that we consider our first and foremost defense. We stand unaccused because there's no accusation that can stand. But on the other hand, since the accuser still tries to send volleys, the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 6-7 of the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, apparently meaning moral righteousness. And it has he's used the word of righteousness in a moral sense already, even in Ephesians several times, at 4.24 and in 5.9. Particularly in 5.9, we see that, that summary verse, if you will, of what it means to walk, right? And what things are good in the sight of God, the things that we are supposed to be about. And so the Christian's breastplate may be righteousness of character and conduct as well. For just as to cultivate truth is the way to overthrow the devil's deceits, so to cultivate righteousness is the way to resist his temptation. It seems to indicate that what was in the apostle's mind at this point was not the righteousness of God which is imputed to us. Although, again, that is incredibly important. Romans 3, 21-22. It's not that. It's uprightness of character, loyalty and principle and action to the holy law of God. I'm going to say that again. When we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, while it is our justification, I think what Paul has in mind is this. Uprightness of character. Uprightness of character. Loyalty and principle and action to the holy law of God. You see, when it comes down to this Christian soldier, brother, sister, to neglect what we know to be righteous action is to leave a gaping hole in our armor. To neglect what we know to be righteous action is to leave a gaping hole in our armor. We can compare the use that he uses here of righteousness with that of 5.9 as we already talked about. It's, it's tying our unrighteousness to his righteousness and justification. It results in our reconciliation, that right relationship that we already talked about, the justification. But this too, Romans 6, 13. This is not the sanctific... This, this is not, I'm sorry, the justification aspect of our salvation. Romans 6, 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We're not talking about the state of someone's salvation here. When we talk about putting on the breastplate of righteousness and doing these righteous actions, we are not in any way talking about adding, earning, or getting salvific grace. There's no amount of work that you can do. There's no action you can take that will give you salvific grace. You are saved or you are not, and it is a work of God. So when we talk about this breastplate of righteousness, we are talking about righteous actions, but it doesn't make us more or less saved. What we're talking about is living in compliance, living in order with that which we are, living in line with your identity. And living in line with your identity, in Romans 6, he is not talking about earning, getting, receiving salvation. He's talking about the sanctification of a Christian's life. 
looking more and more like Christ. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You've already been brought from death to life. Now present yourself and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for righteous actions. See, the completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together into an impenetrable male. The completeness, the comprehensive pardon for past offense, your justification, and the integrity of character that belongs to that justified life are woven together into an impenetrable male. You think about it in the Achilles heel sense, right? Achilles was dipped by his mother into the water, but held onto the ankle. And the ankle was the only vulnerable spot for Achilles, right? When believers are living in unconfessed sin, they are vulnerable to the assaults of Satan. When we live in unconfessed and unrepentant sin, our male falls apart. This righteous life that's supposed to be living in line with that justified life is gone, and there are holes now. They're vulnerable. So, that is, that is the, the text. That's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. I want us to see it in action in Scripture. And then, with as much time as I have left, I'm going to pull a piper and say, I've got nine things, and we're going to hit as many as we can. Because um, I'm not going for 70 minutes again. I'm sorry about that. So, let's see it in Scripture first, all right? If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to talk about Genesis 3 in a minute. Let's talk about Genesis 4. Genesis 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel, right? Beginning in the latter half of verse 2, read with me. Not allowed, just watch, follow. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. John Calvin writes concerning this passion, this passage and says these things. He says, God will pronounce a dreadful sentence against Cain if the man hardens his mind in wickedness and indulges himself in his crime. The warning is emphatic. God not only repels Cain's unjust complaint, but shows that Cain could have no greater adversary than the sin that he inwardly cherishes. It's so easy for us to think that sin is so outside of us. And while Satan does accuse, and while he does tempt, sin resides in the heart. This is a heart issue. We cherish our sin. 
and it will consume us. Calvin goes on to say this, God so binds the impious man in these concise words that he can find no refuge. It is as if he says, your obstinacy will not profit you. For though you would have nothing to do with me, your sin will give you no rest, but will sharply drive you on, pursue you, urge you, and never allow you to escape. Cain rages in vain, but to no profit. He is guilty by his own inward conviction, even though no one accuses him. The expression that sin lies at the door refers to the interior judgment of the conscience that convinces man of his sin and besieges him on every side. I think about the times, particularly, that I have been unrepentant of sin, cherishing it in some form. No one else knows. No one's accusing me. I can hide it from my accountability partners we'll talk about here shortly. I can do whatever I want. and No one's accusing me of this sin. But there's this immense weight that I feel as my own conscience accuses me. Sin is lying at the door. He continues to say this, the impious may imagine that God slumbers in heaven. No one's accusing him. It may seem as if God's in heaven. It's just your heart. It's consuming you. They may strive to repel fear of his judgment, the coming judgment, but sin will perpetually draw these reluctant fugitives back to the tribunal from which they flee. When we're convicted of sin, whatever it may be, we want to flee. But our conscience continues to bring us back. Finally, says this, the expression of Moses has peculiar energy. Sin lies at the door, meaning that the sinner is not immediately tormented with the fear of the judgment. Rather, Gathering around him whatever delights he can to deceive himself, he appears to walk in free space and to revel in pleasant meadows. However, when he comes to the door, he meets sin, which keeps constant guard. Then conscience, which before was at liberty, that was at freedom, is arrested, and he receives double punishment for the delay. God says to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what did Cain do? He spoke to his brother. They were in the field, and his brother killed him. Abel lies dead. Because Cain couldn't have what he wanted. And that's the way our sin is. When we sin, we want what we want. And literally, to hell with everyone else. We find people, we find activities, we find other things to gather around ourselves so that we can continue to deceive ourselves. All we do is delay judgment. And we find that we have a higher price to pay when we finally return. That's Genesis 4. And John 8. John 8, 39-47. We read this in house gathering this week, so I'm going to read through this quickly. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. You'd be doing works that are in line with your identity. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is truth and righteousness in action, both of these passages. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And you are of him. And just a few chapters later, we're going to find out that Jesus was right because they murder him. Truth and righteousness in action. Cain believed the lie. And he acted on it. The Pharisees, believing the lie, not practicing the works of righteousness they were supposed to practice. The works of righteousness that are in line with their identity. So having seen it on Ephesians, I appreciate Matt, particularly last week, pulling things specifically from Ephesians. Now having seen it in the broader context, Old Testament, New Testament, we're going to look at us. I think it's important for us to have a report from the battlefield, to analyze the lay of the land and the way that the conflict is raging around us and the state of which we are in and get a report from the battlefield. I heard from several people this week that they, they really enjoyed last week's sermon. Specifically, um, some people said that it's the first time they've ever heard a sermon on like Satan, on what his tools and his devices and his, his strategies are. And first of all, that's a little concerning. Um, uh, second... Um, we're going to do some more of that today. I, I have nine different ways that I think Satan attacks us, particularly along, you're going to see every single one of these has to do with truth or righteousness. So if you're not convinced yet about this armor of God thing, if you're not convinced yet that there is warfare raging all around us, I'm hoping that these nine things might help you see the lay of the land and a report from the battlefield. Number one, first of all, I believe that the enemy attacks the believer to undermine God's character and credibility. This obviously concerns both truth and righteousness. The enemy attacks the believer to undermine God's character and credibility. This is what happened in the garden. This is precisely how things began. Satan's saying that you can't really trust God. You can't really believe God. He may say one thing, but down deep inside... It means something else. And so his word is not believable. In effect, in the New Testament, it says this, if you deny God his word, you make him a liar. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants people to think God is the liar and that Satan is the one who tells the truth. Now, how does this play out for us? Well, we're tempted in a difficult situation to worry and fret and fume and lose our control, all because we don't really believe God can get us out of it. He questions his power. This happened to me this week with my vehicle. Of all things, right? How foolish am I to be tempted to worry 
and fret and fume and yell at stupid people and can't drive and lose my control. And what is the root of that? Is it because the car is messed up? Is it because people are dumb? No. <laughs> it's because I don't believe God is good. I don't believe that he is in control. We doubt God's grace sometimes and his mercy and his forgiveness, which is nothing but a denial of his promise and his word. talking with a few people this week when it comes to sin we are not as unique as we like to think we are we are not unique butterflies on our sin satan uses the same tools we just have different little variations on the same theme cannot doubt god's grace his mercy his forgiveness we are denying his promise and his word Along these lines, we also frequently doubt God's love. And we think to ourselves that God doesn't really love us or care for us. And How would God possibly love me when he let this bad thing happen to me? My marriage is a mess or my kids are turning out bad or whatever. And Satan pushes us to this place where we doubt the love of God. Not only the power of God, the promise of God, the word of God, but the love of God. See, he invariably wants us to doubt God's love. He attacked Peter one time and caused Peter to doubt the truth of God. And Jesus said to him, as we saw last week, Peter, be careful. Satan desires to sift you. And so Satan attacks us to undermine God's character and God's credibility. Back to my story at the beginning of today. Character is what wins battles. Whose character do we stand on? God's. Satan is trying to undermine God's character and credibility. And as soon as you begin to doubt God at any point in terms of his character or his credibility, consider the source. Number two, this is right along the lines of righteousness. Second thing, I'm convinced that Satan attacks us to make it hard to live the Christian life. I mean, this sounds pretty simple. All of these are. He just wants to make it hard to live the Christian life. He doesn't want it to be easy. He wants it to be very, very difficult. To really live the Christian life, he wants it to be hard. This comes in three different levels or three different styles. One, just outright persecution. It's incredibly hard to live the Christian life in the face of severe and heavy persecution. But then you can tone it back, too, to just peer pressure. Peer pressure can make it really hard to live out the Christian faith. Fear of man, right? But then there's another, I think, extreme. On the opposite end, acceptability. The Christian faith is acceptable. It's the norm. It's okay. And now you don't have to fight for it. And up until, I think, recent years, that's where America was. It's incredibly acceptable. It's becoming less of that now. It just wants to make it hard. Why? We don't like hard work. We won't put it in if it's not our identity. Number three, a third thing that Satan does when he attacks the believer is he confuses the believer with false doctrine. Clearly, this has to do with the belt of truth. He confuses the believers with false doctrine. John MacArthur says this. <laughs> People tell me, well, 
you really can't be dogmatic about the Bible. You just kind of have to take it in general. I have people say to me, you're so dogmatic all the time. You can't be that dogmatic about the Bible. And he responds this way, well, I believe that if you study it, it isn't that tough. (laughs) Scripture, Scripture is very dogmatic. False doctrine has no room in the church. It has no room in the life of a believer. If you look at the pastoral epistles at the end of New Testament, most of them have to do with fighting false teachers. Where are the false teachers at on the battlefield? Are you looking for them? Do you see them? Are you studying truth? Truth is how you repel those people. Fourthly, righteousness. Fourthly, he tries as hard as he can to hinder our service to Christ. He wants to stop effective service. He wants to stop Renovation Church, guys. He wants to stop my ministry, your ministry, the ministry of anyone who is serving Jesus Christ in this place. He wants to do all he can to stop it and to prevent it. As we see throughout the Old Testament, he tries to hinder those who are the prophets of God. As we see in the New Testament, how he tried to hinder Jesus Christ himself. And as we see, he tries to hinder Paul. See, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this when he's writing to them. He says, we wanted to not only give you the word of the gospel, but also we wanted to give you our lives. And so we endeavored to minister. And how, how was that ministry, he says? It was labor and travail. We labored day and night preaching to you the gospel of God. To the Ephesians, he says this, with tears presenting to you the truth. Why? Because it's so hard. People are so resistant. It isn't easy. I've had some people ask me if ministry gets easier. I've had some former students ask me, you've been doing this for almost 10 years. Does it get easier? The answer is no, profoundly no. Ministry does not get easier. It's incredibly difficult because sin is everywhere. Now, to the point of grace, it becomes more encouraging. I have almost 10 years now of, of God's work uh, in my life uh, and those that I've ministered to. As the Israelites had, they had their Ebenezer's, their monuments, their altars of remembrance to look back and remember the Lord your God, how he delivered you from fill in the bank. I have a lot of that, and that's incredibly, incredibly encouraging. But it doesn't get easier. It's hard, hard work. And what does Satan want us to do? He tries to hinder your service to Christ. To look at the battlefield of your life. What's hindering you? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. If you have something else on instead of the armor you're supposed to have on, put off the old man. Get rid of it. We have Christians wandering around the battlefield with their pants around their ankles, like human pincushions with arrows sticking out of them because they haven't worn their breastplate of righteousness. And they think that they can run to whatever destination they want. They think they can make whatever decision they want, filled with the arrows of the devil. Put on truth. Put on righteousness so that you can stand. 
you see something hindering you, get rid of it. Number five. This is both truth and righteousness. I believe Satan does all he can to cause division in the body. He works hard causing division in the body, fracturing us. If you remember from house gathering this week, hopefully you got to it. One way to root out chapter 4's talking about uh, unwholesome speak. Satan does not give grace. Ever. What is a Christian's responsibility? Give grace. What is the truth? Grace. Satan never speaks the truth. He never gives grace. If what you are saying, what you are hearing, what you are tolerating is not grace, it is of Satan. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul says this specifically when we're talking about unity. Endeavor to keep the bond of unity. Unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Do all you can to maintain unity. And Paul exhorts us in that because Satan rips us apart. He brings friction and factions into the body of Christ. Survey your battlefield. Where do you see this? Put on truth. Put on righteousness. Sixth. This has to do with righteousness. This is an area where Satan really hits us hard. And it's very, for some reason, subtle. He urges us to trust our own resources. He urges us to trust our own resources. It's like the men of Mercia and Wessex standing at the gate of Nottingham in front of the Vikings. They trusted their own resources. They lost. They paid tribute. They got their home back only to lose it again so that they could pay again. We trust our own resources. We become so confident in our resources. It's so easy for us, as the psalmist says, to lean on our own understanding, to depend on our own knowledge, our own wisdom, our own insight, our own education, our own spirituality. And we fail to cast ourselves upon the power of God with the sense that Isaiah had. Isaiah's response was not trust in himself. It was not even trust in the calling of prophet that God gave him. His trust, or his response when God approached him was, Woe unto me. He knew he had no resources apart from God. Number seven, both truth and righteousness. Seventh way he attacks us, incredibly common, but we don't like to think of it. I hadn't thought of this much until I started digging into this. He causes us to play the hypocrite, to be hypocritical, right? We so eschew that accusation so much because people say, I don't want to go to church, it's full of hypocrites, and we're like, yeah, we're all hypocrites, come join us. Um, No, we really are. (laughs) We really are. Satan is literally populating the church, including this one, populating every church with people who are phony, who are not real. So my tendency when I think about hypocrisy is to say, well, I really try to live up and do what I say I'm going to do. Uh, to, to be who I claim to be, right? And that, that's where we leave it at. But we don't think about this. Christians do this all the time. We go along smugly, glibly, with a smile. You have this mask, this spirituality. We let the whole world think that we are fine. 
right? How you doing today? I'm good. All we do is pollute the fellowship. And all we do is mask ourselves so well that we never deal with the real problem. We never let anybody see what we're really like. We never open up and tell the truth so that nobody can ever, ever come and and just wrap their arms around us and help to deliver us from the problems that we're facing. Uh, This is half of my hope from our Acts prayer models that we'll actually share some things that are about us and not just our aunt's cousin's brother who's had surgery. We like to hide behind respectability. We hide behind our hypocritical so-called spirituality, just like Ananias and Sapphira, right? We want to lie to the Holy Spirit because Satan has really entered our hearts. Satan has come and played something on us, and, and he's told us that it's better to be thought respectable than to be respectable. It's better not to face your sin and deal with it. It's better to mask it and cover it and play a game, just like Cain did. Sin was crouching at the door. And Satan is so subtle that he fills our church with phony hypocrites. Survey the battlefield. Are you genuine with people? Are you genuine with people? Maybe not everyone. I'm okay with that. That's why we have our ministry model the way we do in DNA. Are you real with the people in your DNA group? Do they really know what your problems are? Is your gospel change project just the one that you don't mind dealing with? Or is it really the hard issue? We have a DNA coaches meeting today. Guys, coaches, what's your GCP? Is it the real thing that you don't mind sharing because you want them to help you as you model authenticity? Or is it the one that you're just going to share to, you know, try to be a good example? Are you real with the people that matter? Number eight has to do with righteousness. Satan attacks us to make us worldly, to shove us into the mold formed by the world. He's so successful at this. The church today is so worldly, affluent, materialistic, self-indulgent, self-satisfied, smug, content with themselves, exactly like the system of this world is today. It's really hard to separate the two sometimes. What does John say to us? He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, and he does, I'm sorry, and he that does the will of God instead abides forever. He's saying, Look, you have no business having anything to do with the world the world is passing and you're eternal the very dimensions of life are incoherent incongruous they cannot come together so what are you doing with the world and yet the church gets engulfed because satan constantly pushes us into the world finally number nine has to do with both truth and righteousness again I think Satan wants to cause us to act in disobedience to what we know is God's word. Again, an obvious one. So effective. Back to the garden again. Moral, legislative autonomy. I 
We've already been talking about the legislative autonomy. Now we asked about the moral part. We want to be on our own. We don't want help. We don't want to be real. We want to live in our wisdom. We want to be autonomous. Rather than trust God and his character and what he says is true of us. But this last one is probably the pinnacle of it all. Satan wants us to act immorally. If God is moral and God sets the moral law, then any act against God's law is immorality. Whether it's sexual or or social, whatever it is, acting immorally is acting against the moral law, and God is the one who established it. And so, he just wants us to disobey God. That gives Satan an opportunity. That gives him his advantage. Having done that, you'll fall at all the other eight. And that's how it's going to come, guys. These nine, that's how it's going to come. That's how it's always come. That's where the battle lies. Again, all of this is bondage and the war over humans. Leading away the soldier into chains and into captivity. Put on your armor. And see, at the death of Jesus, there was a great rattling of chains. The links of evil that bound us snapped in two. A world that was held in bondage to that dragon was, in the death of the Son of God, immediately and irrevocably freed forever from its captivity. It all began in Bethlehem as we just celebrated with Christmas. Unseen by human eyes, hell and heaven battled over us. And heaven, in the end, stood on the neck of hell and pressed his foot into the throat that had so long accused us. The accuser of our brethren, John wrote, has been thrown down. He was conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Our Messiah has already worn this. God's anointed one has already worn this armor, and he has won. And he offers it to us now, that we might succeed in battle and stand strong. Having withstood all, stand strong. Put on the armor. Put on the armor. Survey the battlefield. Fight. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you so much. You are, you are so, so good to us. You are a good commander. And Father, I thank you for the fact that we can trust you. Father, I thank you for the fact that Satan, as creative as he is, has come up with nothing new. The same things we struggle with today are the same things that they struggled with in the early church, the same thing that the Israelites struggled with, the same thing that stopped Adam and Eve. Father, while we apparently prove to not be observant, to not trust, God, I thank you that the the enemy's weaponry is, is just still the same. And it is still the same because it's effective. Father, we are weak and we are selfish. Father, I pray that you would help us fight. That we would see the wisdom of donning the armor you've provided. Not not just for fun and not just out of your own goodness, but Father, through the death of your Son on the cross, you have provided these things to us. Let us not take that lightly. Let us understand the gravity of what's at stake Father, that our men would fight for their souls and for their families. Father, that they would see what is at stake in the family of God and the church. 
And Father, that we would rid ourselves of anything that is not congruent. We have more important things to do. There's a battle to be fought. There are souls at stake, our own and those that are still perishing. Father, let us be about the business that you would have for us in this new kingdom that your son has won. Father, I thank you for people here at this church that come week after week looking to arm themselves with the truth of your scriptures. And Father, I pray again that our hearts would have been softened to this message. Father, as we look at the truth of Scripture, that we would be armed to the teeth, ready to fight together in line under your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.